It is lights out and away we go. Welcome to the conclusion of a special two-part episode of The Pit Straight, where I, Jack Swansea, the host of the podcast to which you are currently listening, am joined by Road and Track Motorsports editor and a man who, contrary to popular belief, does not look like Dan Weldon, Fred Smith, as the two of us set out to answer a very simple question with a very complicated answer. What is the greatest race car of all time? Braun GP had the advantage of two very hungry drivers uh, who had been desperate to prove that they were more than just people who happened to be on the grid for 10 years at the same time. And it had the advantage of a Ross Braun who was uh, pretty done with the experience of running Honda, but not as done with Formula One as anybody had quite expected. Uh, they did, however, have the disadvantage of eventually being sold to Mercedes, which stopped their ability to build any legacy as a private team, stopped their ability to become the Williams of the 2010, which of course Williams is certainly not. Uh, what they became instead was Mercedes, and Mercedes instead put together a pretty solid string of cars at the beginning of the V6 Turbo era, uh, cars strong enough that Lewis Hamilton was free to have a full-on punch-for-punch championship fight with Nico Rosberg, which is unthinkable even today, even in this car, even if we're stopping were to do that with Perez, I think we'd be getting to the point at this point in the year where there's actually a real chance the McLarens could have been catching them, uh, because Hamilton and Rosberg were so free with each other that if they were to both retire from the race because of a mistake either made, Mercedes was just fine with it. So that seems a great way to introduce the 2016 Mercedes, which I, I personally will, will, will describe the, the greatest 21st century Mercedes Formula 1 car as the W11 from 2020, uh, which still holds the overall track record at the six circuits that currently remain on the calendar as they were in 2020 just six it's still the fastest car to ever go around them but if you look at it statistically uh 2020 wasn't a full season the w07 from 2016 which gave nico rosberg his one world championship over lewis hamilton who nevertheless won 10 races um that car lost twice both to red bulls the first most famously when rosberg and hamilton crashed into each other on the first lap of the spanish grand prix allowing the newly promoted red bull driver some kid no one had ever heard of named max verstappen uh to win his first formula one race 19 wins is still the record for a formula one car um we very well may see that beaten this year uh even if the rb19 does not have a perfect season as it looks like it's going to uh even if the even if you know verstappen and Perez both break down and Oscar Piastri or Landon Norris steals a win. 19 wins in 21 races. Very, very. I mean, that's a lot. That that's that was the year that I started watching F1. And I was just like, okay, yep, this is what it's like. Only two people can win. Which, if you look at it from, from our perspective now, wouldn't it be nice if two people could win? What optimism. Uh the the 2020 car, I think, has the trouble of being undercut by the 2021 rules being written shamelessly to stop that car. Uh, they ran the same car with uh, different restrictions that made any car built to that low rate concept significantly slower on most circuits. Uh, as a result, the Red Bull built to the other concept was immediately competitive, and we all know what happened next. Uh, that car still won two constructors championships, which when we talk about the 2002 winning a race in 2003, more impressive because there's no regulation requirement. But still, the 2020 Mercedes won two constructors' championships, which is unheard of past the 1950s and 60s. But I still think the 2016 car is better 
because the 2016 car was the one that allowed them to open up the team completely to a kind of season that we really haven't seen before or since. Even in teams that claim to have equal competition between their drivers, we have not seen competition so equal that such a face of a team has had so much success before or since against really any teammate, including George Russell, who he was beaten by last year, but was clearly better than if you were actually watching the races from about round five on. Nico Rosberg went up to Lewis Hamilton and beat him enough that it mattered. And he beat him on track. He beat him with a very long win streak, uh, which I think was at one point interrupted by that uh, race where he retired and Lewis couldn't get a win. It was their second loss of the season. But still, it was an effective season. It was a very compelling season. And it was possible because the car was so good that a team with a true number one, number two structure was able to say, we're good, go for it. I mean, it looks a lot like 1988 at McLaren. Although Nico Rosberg is, uh, with all due respect, not Ireland. Interesting that you would say uh, Rosberg is the is the Senna situ- in the situation. But if you go by number of world championships, certainly. And that that's a, that's a conversation that for another time that we don't need to get into, certainly. Um, and... Although this is, of course, a Formula One podcast, this doesn't have to be a Formula One question. The greatest race car of all time. So, Fred, I want to present to you, don't get too excited, the Porsche 962. You know how I feel about that era and nation of cars. (laughs) (laughs) My my personal favorite race car in the world is the Porsche 917. Uh, 917 being the car that... First of all, if you just look at the scaling of performance from 1962 to 1972, there is this overwhelming explosion of, first of all, horsepower output from race cars, tire technology, uh, technology in building specified chassis, the uh, 917 being the crowning achievement in all three because it had very wide still bias supply tires that were terrifyingly ineffective, but compared to what would have been on a Ferrari 250 LM, unheard of. Uh, a flat 12 made by putting together two road car flat sixes, that is modest output uh compared to what it would do with a turbocharger but still it has naturally aspirated car with the long tail was able to go 220 miles per hour circumvent sarth and most impressively a chassis held together by pressurized tubes with a little gauge in there to tell you if this pressure drops below this number you're going to die which is a really clever and creative thing to do uh the 917 of course is a car that terrified everybody who ever drove it won Le Mans twice uh, in Can-Am form, had 1,500 horsepower, set a speed record on Noble, all these things. But the 917 only raced for four years, and it was two of those years, uh, five years, I'm sorry, and in two of those years, it was restricted from Le Mans. Uh, the 962 ran for the entire Group C era as either the 956 or as the 962, which was its sort of its facelift and successor. It won seven times on its own, including six straight. The seventh win came as a GT car because the rules had changed six years later to allow far too open of GT cars and someone just said, what if we bring a 962? And that was enough to win a solid decade after the car was made. Yeah, literally a decade. It was in, the, the 956 was introduced, I believe, in 84. And the Dower 962 GT version of the Porsche 962 won in 1994. If you think about Porsche trading on how many times they've won Le Mans, most of them were this car. The it, it set a qualifying lap record at Le Mans that stood for 32 years, of course, over the course of track changes. And then Stefan Beloff's Nürburgring lap record in the last top flight sports car race to take place on the original 
uh, full Nurburgring layout, stood for 35 years until Porsche brought their LMP1 de-restricted 919 hybrid Evo specifically to beat their own record. I mean, this is it, it's an iconic car, the Rothman, the Rothman's livery. But but in terms of stats, in terms of number of races won at in premier classes, I really don't think anything can compare to the 956 and 962. And as we're getting into this new IMSA GTP and uh, hypercar, as the ACO calls it, because they refuse to name anything well, era, the 963 is, of course, kind of a retro future styling of the 962. That car is very much built on the same concept and that Porsche is giving out to more or less any customer who wants it well before any other one else is interested in investing as a customer. A big part of the reason the 962 won so much is that so many people could run it, that it was so runnable. Uh, in the U.S. in particular, it was very popular to effectively build your own chassis and then put the rest of a 962 around it rather than buy one from Porsche. Uh, March famously made their name doing this. But the 963, the thing that it has, the thing that it cannot necessarily have the 962 had is longevity. Because if you look at Group C, you think of all these manufacturers that raced there. And you think of Mazda, and you think of Jaguar, and you think of all these companies, Mercedes and Sauber. Most of them did not race at the same time. Most of them did not race for full era. Porsche did. And the car was competitive for the full era. The reason it was so good for so long is that anybody could run it. It was very fast on every type of track. It was very fast on both continents, which when you consider the differences in rule sets was exceptionally impressive. Uh, look, just right now, the difference between balance and performance with the same cars in WEC and in IMSA, and you can see that's still difficult. And most importantly, they just ran it for 11 years. And they said, yeah, sure, when someone asked if they could run it as a GT car. And they claim that win. They do. One of the, is it 19 or 20? I I believe it's still 19. Actually, it may be 20 now. I need to look this up. They've won three times with the... Uh, with the uh, past LMP1 car, which gums up the numbers a little bit. Of course, now their competition's coming from Ferrari, who is back to winning ways after a solid 60 years. So uh, between Ferrari's last win at Le Mans and the debut of your favorite Porsche 917, uh, there's a car that has to be in the discussion, even if the stats maybe aren't in it, the Ford GT40. And the Mark IV in particular. The Mark IV in particular, uh, that... AJ Foyt had perhaps the greatest motorsport year of all time driving. Um, yeah. The thing is, I, I don't I don't know to what extent you could classify the 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 Mark IV GT40 as a different car. Um, probably shouldn't. Um, and then it won it won in the Mark One for in '68 and '69 as a customer car. The the Gulf Oil colors making it to to the winner's circle at Le Mans. And same car both years, which is very rare. And they made a whole movie about it. They did. The GT40, uh, the Mark IV is my favorite because it uh, makes the same leaps, kind of. You could see the, the gap from where when that program started, where racing cars were, to where racing cars were in 1967. Uh, Mark IV and the J-Car concept, which, of course, makes a cameo in the movie as the thing that kills the lead of the movie in testing, uh, is, to me, the greatest ever American race car. Uh, but I think there's some bias there towards Le Mans that I have. It is the car that is the biggest step forward for what American engineering could do because it was built so much more domestically than the GT40s Mark I and II. Uh, it is also the car that was driven by Dan Gurney, in my opinion, the greatest racing season ever. And almost more impressively, I'm sorry, by AJ Foyt, in my opinion, the greatest racing season ever. And almost more impressively by Dan Gurney in the most impressive racing week ever because right after he got out of that car, 
He went to Belgium and won the only race for an owner constructor in any time since. That's in that's in Formula One. Yes, in the uh, in the beautiful beautiful shark nosed AAR F1 car, uh, which was not so successful otherwise, but won the one race that the history books count. <laughs> Dan Gurney, I think, this is a conversation uh, again for another time, but Dan Gurney does not get the credit that he deserves in, in a lot of more contemporary automotive media circles. I think Dan Gurney as a driver, as a really as a car designer, and as just a great figure in perhaps the greatest era, at least sort of most mythological era of motor racing. Yeah. Parnelli Jones and going back to the 917, Mark Donahue are the three that really stand out to me as when we list our Mario Andretti's and our AJ Foyt's, all three of those really need to be in those conversations. And for that matter, Jim Clark, who very much is in England, but not so much here. Uh, although, Jim Clark does bring me a roundabout way to my personal favorite race car that I would consider important, but not necessarily good. Uh, because Jim Clark won the first Indianapolis 500 in a rear engine car, which is a historically important car, Lotus 38, based on a historically important car, the Lotus 49. Both of those are great cars. I don't think this is a great car. I think it's a very important one. And that is the current Indy car that has run since 2012. The DW12, IR18, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, it is in its, what is this? The 12th year of this, 11th year of this. Next year will be the 12th of uh, this chassis and engine. Uh, third aero kit design. Same two manufacturers, except for the few weeks where Lotus tried. And the thing about this car over anything else is that it is terrible to drive. The notes you will get from drivers is that this car is bad to drive. And the manner in which it's bad to drive creates the best racing on natural terrain road courses I have consistently seen from any series. It is also the only Indy car I've ever seen that is actually good on street circuits rather than cool to watch. And it is also, at this point, pretty good on ovals. At one point, it was the best car I've ever seen racing on ovals in any series of any sort. The only problem is that it is both slow and heavy uh, and will get slower and heavier with the introduction of hybrid systems. So I don't think any driver would call it great, uh, but as a fan, it is my favorite. That's a good distinction to make um, because most often we think about great race car drivers from the, sorry, most great race cars we think about from the perspective of drivers and the perspective of the record books. But in a lot of ways, that's counterintuitive to what race fans want to see. And so I concur with you that the IndyCar Delara chassis is certainly one of the great race cars from a fan watching racing perspective. Um, and the Indy 500 is routinely the best race of the year to watch. I still think any car on any track, I will take current Indy cars on the speedway every day of the week. And it's gonna, it's going to have won 12 straight Indianapolis 500s, which if you aren't really paying attention to how that race works is really <laughs> impressive. You know what? That's true. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but the Ligier has been very successful at LMP2 at Le Mans until the Orica became very successful at LMP2. I think the time has come to reach a decision about the official, the pit straight greatest race car of all time, summer break, F1 2023. I lean MP44. It's not that the Red Bull isn't very impressive. It's that I'm not really, really ready to crown something mid-season. And for the sports car, I think I would say the 962. What do you think? Okay, so so those are our finalists, because I do agree with you. Um, we'll see what the RB19 can do. If it maintains a perfect record, I think it'll be hard to argue against it. And I put the, the 2016 Mercedes in the same category as the MP44. It's just the McLaren did it first, and in a way that we've had, it's aged like a fine one. So in, in a way that we're not supposed to do to compare F1 and sports clubs, 962, MP44. 
Well, if I were to have one to own, I would have the 962 because I've seen how difficult it is to start and run an F1 car. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not really the question here. Uh, I've always been amazed watching the MP44 on uh, YouTube videos, which is just about the most F1 fan under 40 thing you can really say. Although at this point, I think that number's probably moved to 50 uh, because it's, it's not 2010 anymore. <laughs> but between those two, the thing that I'm really going to lean on here is longevity. MP44 as a Formula One car had every single race it ran had the two greatest drivers in the field. The best active designer was designing it at the time. What it did to the degree it did it was shocking, but what it did was expectation for that era of McLaren. Uh, Porsche winning Le Mans by the seventh time was expectation, but sixth time was expectation. Uh, they, of course, had won with the 936 before that car ever debuted too. But I think the fact that that expectation continued for a decade as every other factory took a shot at it, sometimes succeeded, never consistently succeeded. That, to me, is more impressive feat. Setting aside the fact that the McLaren was planned obsolete, uh, because of the the rules changes coming for 1989. The greatest print advertisement in certainly automotive history, uh, but I would go out on a limb and say history in general, is the is the Porsche Nobody's Perfect ad, uh, which to to which we have the we have that car to thank. Was it was it 83 or 84 Le Mans? I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. Oh, it's Le Mans 83. Yes. It was, yeah, 1983 Le Mans. It says in, in plain text, nobody's perfect. First, Porsche. Second, Porsche. Third, Porsche. Fourth, Porsche. Fifth, Porsche. Sixth, Porsche. Seventh, Porsche. Eighth, Porsche. Ninth, Sauber BMW. And tenth, Porsche. I, I'm confident then that as, as a result of the ultimate flex, the, the Porsche 956, 962, is I'm I'm willing to crown it the greatest race car of all time on this F1 podcast. And had that Nurburgring record for a very long time as well. And part of the reason that record fell is not that cars weren't faster, not that other manufacturers couldn't bring an F1 car or an LMP1 car to do a demo at track. A big part of that record was respect for both the car and for Stefan Beloff. And the only reason it was ever really allowed to fall per se is that Porsche was going to do it in a successor car that was built for the sole purpose of taking records. I think that shows a lot of both internal respect from the company, external respect from the racing world at large. And I think it's important that we keep Stefan Belloff as part of that story because he was undoubtedly the best at driving that specific car outside of maybe Jackie X or Derek Bell. Well, Fred, thank you very much for coming on this very special two-part episode of The Pit Straight. Um, you can be found, I'm saying this to you, Audience, you can find Fred, of course, uh, as I did on Twitter at FredSmith914. And you can find me at Jack Swansea. You can find Front Stretch at Front Stretch and FS Open Wheel. And from the time you're listening to this, it won't be long until F1 action gets back. Although, of course, for us, it will be quite a while. Until next time. <laughs>